This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So I believe I, with the help of others, have figured out what the static issue is. And so crossing my fingers, crossing my toes, I'm not going to have that issue again. And I'm not going to have to record podcast episodes two, three, four, sometimes times before I can release it because nobody wants an annoying static sound in the background. So I think we're good to go. And I feel relieved about that because technology issues are a pain and technology issues happen a lot for me. So I'm so glad that we finally, I think, have that figured out. Now I know in the past I have also said that I thought we had it figured out, but I think that we do this time. No thanks to myself, but thanks to other people who are smarter than me when it comes to technology. So today's episode, I want to talk about some of the things that make us, well, us, because that's what we're talking about in this series. How we work, what can go wrong, how important it is to understand our story and its impact on us. Now, recently I finished another book by Dr. Gabor Mate, who is a retired physician after 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience. He worked extensively with patients who were challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. He is a best-selling author and an internationally renowned speaker highly sought after for his expertise on addiction, trauma, childhood development, and the relationship of stress and illness. Now, I've really enjoyed every book of his that I've read. I, I don't know that I've read all of them, but I have enjoyed every book of his that I've read. He also has a lot of YouTube videos that I've watched, and I've even had the pleasure of hearing him speak in person several years ago. So today's episode, we're going to be talking, like I said, about what makes us us and how our story impacts us according to the work of Gabor Mate. Now, this could be kind of a lengthy episode because I'm going to be reading several things that he's written about or talked about. And one of the things that I really like about his work is how he is able to talk about our body, how he's able to talk about our biology, how he's able to talk about our physiology and then our psychology and put it all together in ways that don't go right over your head and that you don't have to be a practicing physician of 20 years to understand what he's talking about. So some of that I'm going to be reading from his book because let's be honest, I could not summarize what he talks about in his book when it comes to our body or our biology and our physiology and the psychology of us and our story and our life experiences. Now he starts out talking about how he says, quote, genetic fundamentalism permeates public awareness these days. It may be summed up as the belief that almost every illness and every human trait is dictated by heredity. Simplified media accounts culled from semi-digested research findings have declared that inflexible laws of DNA rule the biological world. He continues, It was reported in 1996 that according to some psychologists, 
genes determine about 50% of a person's inclination to experience happiness. And each week brings the discovery of a gene that is associated with some disease or trait. He said, with thousands yet to be discovered, you can just imagine what is out there or in there. The line dancing gene, the loves British cuisine gene, the tendency to go on TV talk shows and embarrass yourself gene. He says genes are codes for synthesis of the proteins that give a particular cell its characteristic structure and function. They are, as it were, alive and dynamic in architectural and mechanical plans. Whether the plan becomes realized depends on far more than the gene itself. It is determined for the most part by the environment. To put it differently, genes carry potentials inherent in the cells of a given organism, which of multiple potentials become expressed biologically is a question of life circumstance." End quote. Now, one of the things that I, again, like about his work is how he's able to talk, you know, expertly, is that the word? With expertise, maybe say it that way, with expertise about our body and the systems that make up our body and our physical self and our biological self. But he's also able then to talk about life experiences and he's able to also bring a personal perspective to his work as he talks about his own life story, his early childhood, and how that played out for him as an adult. Now, when I was a new therapist, so this quote that I just read stated that it was reported in 1996 that genes determine about 50% of a person's inclination to experience happiness. That's just one thing, right? And then we've continued to say, oh, genes dictate this and genes dictate obesity and genes dictate yada, 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 right? Now I entered the field as a therapist in 1995. So this is about the time that I was coming into the field. And you know, one thing that I think is important to note is I entered the field as an addiction therapist. Um, I think I've talked before on other episodes, not by choice, just because that was the job I could get. And so I took the job. Part of that, you know, sometimes I jokingly, but not totally jokingly will say I wanted insurance because I hadn't been to the dentist in a couple of years because I didn't have insurance and my teeth were getting a little bit yucky and I wanted to go to the dentist. So I accepted the job. Now, maybe there was a little bit more to it than that, but I had not considered as I was going to school and studying and taking exams and writing papers, I was not considering ever going into addiction and working in the addiction field. And on many levels, the addiction field, I think is kind of considered maybe a step sibling to the mental health field. Like we have the mental health field, oh yeah, and then there's addiction, but it's not, you know, it's kind of looked at as maybe its own little beast or its own category, and it's not really under the umbrella of mental health disorders. Now, some of Gabor's work obviously kind of just plasters and knocks over that wall that is there or that is erected between mental health and the addiction field, which I love having been in the addiction field largely most of my career for about 28 years. I've worked around addiction, in addiction, with addiction. And so I really like that he kind of just 
like I said, smashes through that wall that has been erected. And it's like, there's no wall here. What are we talking about? So I remember as a new therapist, the thinking in the field was there was chemical depression, which, you know, was neurotransmitters, not firing properly or a lack of synapse energy. And that was kind of considered chemical depression, like something chemically, maybe we would also use the term biologically was misfiring in the brain or not firing enough in the brain. And that would result in what we were calling chemical depression. And then we were considering situational depression. So situational depression is kind of like it sounds, it's a situation that results in a person being depressed. And I remember once I was in supervision and talking to my supervisor about a case I was working with. And I remember asking him, like, I have several clients who have been diagnosed chemically depressed and are being treated for chemical depression, but we just keep finding these situations that to me seem like they would be situational depression. So I'm kind of confused as to whether this is chemical depression or situational depression because we keep finding situations. And I don't even recall what his response to was at that time. I look back on that conversation in supervision and it makes me chuckle. It makes me laugh like when I think about it and just how far we've come in the last, you know, two plus decades, almost three decades, just since I've been in the field. Now, Gabor points out that maternal depression, so let's talk about depression for a minute since I brought that up. He talks about how maternal depression, if so, if mom is depressed, that is associated with diminished infant attention spans. Dale F. Hay, a researcher at the University of Cambridge, suggests, quote, that the experience of the mother's depression in the first months of life may disrupt naturally occurring social processes that entrain and regulate the infant's developing capacities for attention, end quote. Now, I remember one of my clients that I was working with at that time in 1995, or maybe it was 96, and one of the things we were looking at, right, was her mom was depressed and her mom's mom, so her grandmother was depressed. And I was asking my supervisor, like, is that a situation? Or is that inherited, right? Is that genetic and biological? Is that DNA that's determining that? Or is it a situation? Like I'm kind of confused because it made sense to me that if your mom was depressed, you come home from school and mom's in bed and there's, you know, maybe the blinds are drawn. It's kind of dark in the house. Mom's been sleeping all day. It would seem to me like that's a situation, and maybe a chemical depression, but at the time we were looking at chemical depression or situational depression. So we now know that genes can be activated or turned off. They can be turned on or they can be turned off by factors in the environment. And we know that not everyone with genes that spell out a certain disorder have a genetic component to it. Not everybody who has genes for certain disorders are going to have the disorder or the disease. And not everyone with certain disorders are going to be shown to carry the genes. So we know it's not that 
simple. It's not that binary of either it's chemical or it's situational. Gabor says, quote, the family atmosphere in which a child spends the early formative years has a major impact on brain development. Studies comparing identical twins adopted by different families have some enduring misconceptions. The misconception often has to do with the belief that identical twins adopted by different families allow for the separation of genetic effects from the environmental ones. He continues, the thinking is that because they are brought up under different circumstances, any similarities in personality traits are assumed to be due to the shared heredity and any differences in character are thought to be caused by differences of environment. This misbelief has heavily influenced the conventional understanding of ADD and probably many other disorders that we know people are dealing with. He says it has been shown, for example, that if one of the twin pair has ADD or attention deficit disorder, there is a 50 to 60% likelihood that the other will have it as well. The technical term for this likelihood is concordance. Such a high degree of concordance is taken to prove a hereditary causation, but only if one ignores the most obvious question. Since identical twins have exactly the same genes, why would the concordance be closer to 100%? He says also ignored is a powerful environmental factor, which is the adoption itself. As he's talking about these identical twin studies, he says, quote, a consistently available nurturing caregiver is a fundamental need of the human infant. Adoption means separation from the birth mother to whose body, voice, heartbeat, and biorhythms a newborn is attuned by the time of birth. We cannot simply discount the devastating effects that separation may have on the impressionable nervous system of the infant. Not a few adoptions, including a significant number of the adoptions examined in published studies, take place several months or longer after birth. Many adoptee infants must endure several changes of caregiver without any single consistently reliable mothering figure to provide them with a constant safe relationship. Given that emotional security is an absolute human need in infancy, it is astonishing that adoption is so often forgotten as a possibly crucial influence. He continues, there is another environment that adopted twins have shared, nine months in the same uterus. Stress on the mother during pregnancy can unbalance the levels of hormones in her body, particularly of the stress hormone cortisol. Both during and after intrauterine life, cortisol directly affects the developing nervous system. The vast majority of pregnancies ending in adoption occur in mothers under severe stress. They are often unwanted pregnancies, many in teenage girls facing enormous personal, family, and social pressures. Infants, twins, or single who are adopted out are likely to have been exposed to high levels of stress hormones throughout the nine months of gestation, a negative influence on their developing brains even before birth, end quote. He continues to say, Quote, none of this is to say that all babies are born alike or that there are no important inborn differences in neurological systems from one infant to the next. Mothers report being aware of some characteristic features in the personalities of their babies right from birth and even before. Some infants, for example, may be more difficult to arouse, others to quiet down, 
Some may be extremely sensitive, others relatively insensitive to environmental stimuli, such as noise or touch. Stanley Greenspan calls these patterns of reactivity. And in his 1997 volume, The Growth of the Mind, Dr. Greenspan observes that the same combination of biological traits, the very same pattern of reactivity, can come to embody many positive human qualities or may serve as the basis of highly disturbed characteristics. Whether these features become talents or problems depends in short on how the child's nature is nurtured, he writes. The critical difference is the environments in which children are reared. Now, I work with a lot of clients who will say to me, I don't know what my childhood was like. I don't remember. And I understand that. And I know sometimes we've gotten in trouble in our field for, you know, making guesses or kind of taking some leaps as to what might have happened during those times by looking at what we're seeing now. I think there is some reason to do that that is more established or more evidence-based than it has been in the past. And I think we, we still have to know. We're kind of guessing at some of this because for many of these months or days or weeks or years, a child is really nonverbal and doesn't have memory the way we think of memory in terms of, you know, details and facts and dates and the story and the reactions and all of that type of stuff. Gabor says, quote, that many variables will influence the particular environment a child experiences. Birth order, for one, automatically places siblings in dissimilar situations. The older sibling has to suffer the pain of seeing parental love and attention directed toward an intruder. The younger sibling may need to learn survival in an environment that harbors a stronger, potentially hostile rival and never comes to know either the special status or the burden of being an only child. The full weight of unconscious parental expectations is far more likely to fall on the firstborn. Historical studies of birth order have established it as an important influence on the shaping of the personality comparable with sex. So again, something to think about as you're thinking about who am I? And as you're taking on a journey of developing a solid sense of self, maybe look at birth order. And what was that like? And what was that relationship like with older siblings? Maybe if you're the younger sibling, what did life look like? He continues, quote, more accurately, brothers and sisters share some environments, usually the less important ones, but they rarely share the one single environment that has the most powerful impact on personality formation. They may live in the same house, eat the same kinds of food, partake in many of the same activities, these are environments of secondary importance. Of all environments, the one that most profoundly shapes the human personality is the invisible one, the emotional atmosphere in which the child lives during the critical early years of brain development. The invisible environment has little to do with parenting philosophies or parenting style. It is a matter of intangibles. Foremost among them being the parents' relationship with each other and their emotional balance as individuals. These two can vary significantly from the birth of one child to the rival of another. Psychological tension in the parents' lives during the child's infancy is, he says, I am convinced a major and universal influence on the subsequent emergence of ADD to be one factor. He continues, 
For the infant, there exists no abstract, quote, out there, end quote, reality. The emotional milieu with which we surround the child is the world as he experiences it. In the words of the child psychiatrist and researcher Margaret Mailer for the newborn, the parent is, quote, the principal representative of the world, end quote. To the infant and toddler, the world reveals itself in the image of the parent, in eye contact, intensity of glance, body language, tone of voice, and above all, in the day-to-day -day joy or emotional fatigue exhibited in the presence of the child. Whatever a parent's intention, these are the means by which the child receives his or her most formative communications. Although they will be of paramount importance for development of the child's personality, these subtle and often unconscious influences will be missed on psychological questionnaires or observations of parents in clinical settings. There is no way to measure a softening or an edge of anxiety in the voice, the warmth of a smile, or the depth of furrows on a brow. We have no instruments to gauge the tension in a father's body as he holds his infant, or to record whether a mother's gaze is clouded by worry or clear with calm anticipation. It may be said that no two children have exactly the same parents, in that the parenting they each receive may vary in highly significant ways. Whatever the hopes, wishes, or intentions of the parent, the child does not experience the parent directly. The child experiences the parenting. He says, I have known two siblings to disagree vehemently about their father's personality during their childhood. Neither has to be wrong if we understand that they did not receive the same fathering, which is what formed their experience of the father. He says, I have seen subtly but significantly different mothering given to a pair of identical twins. D.W. Winnicott, who wrote Home is Where We Start From, said, quote, if a mother has eight children, there are eight mothers. This is not simply because of the fact that the mother was different in her attributes to each of the eight. If she could have been the same with each, each child would have had his or her own mother seen through individual eyes. So again, what he is getting at is saying, yeah, sometimes the parenting varies from child to child. Occupations may vary. Finances may vary. Housing may vary. You know, Gabor talks about personally his own story, how political disruption in countries had a significant impact on his development as an infant. Things that are happening in the world at large, things that are happening in our communities, and then we have the stresses of the parents, of the family, maybe even extended family, and what is going on or what emotions are coming up are going to shape parents. And sometimes that is different. And nothing we can control from one child to the next. And so our kids may have, and more, most likely do have, different parents during those early stages as he was talking about, even the oldest has a very different set of parents than even the second and certainly than the third or the fourth. And D.W. Winnicott is saying, also, that child is different. That Not all babies are the same. They have their own wiring they come with. They have their own sensitivity to stimuli that they come with. And so even if a parent could control everything, which we cannot, we can't produce the same baby with the same wiring, the same sensitivity, the same 
you know, initial formations of personality, we can't control or dictate that that is the same from child to child. So even if the parent could be the same, which again, they cannot, because there are factors outside of their control, the baby is different. The infant is different. And so the father or the mother, whoever is doing the caregiving is also going to be seen through each infant's individual eyes. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about, I'm going to read, actually, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to read what Gabor Mate has to say about our wiring and our body and how it works. And I'm going to read it because again, he says it much better than I do. And I think it's important if we're understanding this sense of self, this is an important part for us to take into consideration. He says, quote, the human brain is the most complex entity in the universe. It has between 50 and 100 billion nerve cells or neurons, each branch to form thousands of possible connections with other nerve cells. It has been estimated that laid end to end, the nerve cables of a single human brain would extend into a line several hundred thousand miles long. The total number of connections or synapses is in the trillions. The parallel and simultaneous activity of innumerable brain circuits and networks of circuits produces millions of firing patterns each and every second of our lives. It's just kind of something astounding to consider. He says the brain has well been described as a super system of systems. Even though about 20,000 or so genes in the human organism are dedicated to the central nervous system, the genetic code simply cannot carry enough information to predetermine the infinite number of potential brain circuits. For this reason alone, biological heredity could not by itself account for the densely intertwined psychology and neurophysiology of an individual. He says experience in the world determines the fine wiring of the brain. As the neurologist and neuroscientist Antonio Damasio puts it, quote, much of each brain circuitry at any given moment in adult life is individual and unique, truly reflective of that particular organism's history and circumstances, end quote. This is no less true of children and infants. Not even in the brains of genetically identical twins will the same patterns be found in the shape of nerve cells or the numbers and configuration of their synapses with other neurons. The microcircuitry of the brain is formatted by influences during the first few years of life a period when the human brain undergoes astonishingly rapid growth. Five-sixths of the branching of nerve cells in the brain occurs after birth. At times in the first year of life, new synapses are being established at a rate of three billion a second. In large part, each infant's individual experiences in the early years determine which brain structures will develop and how well and which nerve centers will be connected with which other nerve systems and establish the network's controlling behavior. He continues, of all mammals, the human animal has the least mature brain at birth. Early in their infancy, other animals perform tasks far beyond the capabilities of humans for many months. A horse can walk on the first day of life. Infant apes cling to mother's fur within a few weeks of birth. Human beings are able to coordinate the visual skills, muscle control, balance and orientation in space required for comparable activities only near the end of the first year. In the period following birth, 
the human brain, unlike that of our closest evolutionary relative, the chimpanzee, continues to grow at the same rate as in the womb, whereas the chimpanzee brain will no more than double from birth to reach its adult size, the brain mass of humans will have tripled by age four. By adulthood, the size of our brain will have quadrupled, meaning that fully three quarters of our brain growth takes place outside the womb following birth, with most of this increase occurring in the early years. Now, this is one thing I explain to clients. You know, another thing when I was early in the field, going along with kind of this discussion about what's biological or what's environmental, you know, is it nature? Is it nurture? I think we're starting to understand that because so much of our development takes place outside of the womb, where we're literally growing and developing and shaping while we're in the environment, yes, there is, you know, biological components. There is a nature component to that. Here's how things are set up to be wired. But as Gabor Mate has stated, and other people have stated as well, what genes are turned on or left off, what gets activated, what doesn't get activated, what connections are made, what connections aren't made, largely has to do with our life experiences. In the initial developing stages of an infant, let's talk about the first nine months that they're in the womb or around nine months that they're in the womb. There's a lot of things that are uh, happening for that infant. Now there might be, you know, stress of the mother that's impacting the developing infant, but eating, having needs taken care of, being protected, a lot of that is happening without the mother even really having to focus much on that inside the womb for that developing infant. And we know that a secure, safe, not overly stressed emotional atmosphere is also most likely one of the most likely things to be disrupted in our Western societies once that infant is born. Gabor writes, the human infant lacks the capacity to follow or cling to the parent soon after being born and is neurologically and biochemically underdeveloped in many other ways. The first nine months or so of extra uterine life seem to have been intended by nature as the second part of gestation. The anthropologist Ashley Montague has called this phase exterogestation, which is gestation outside the maternal body. During this period, the security of the womb must be provided by the parenting environment. To allow for the maturation of the brain and nervous system that in other species occurs in the uterus, the attachment that was until birth directly physical now needs to be continued on both physical and emotional levels. Physically and psychologically, the parenting environment must contain and hold the infant as securely as she was held in the womb. He writes, a calm and consistent emotional milieu throughout infancy is an essential requirement for the wiring of the neurophysiological circuits of self-regulation. When interfered with, as it is often in our society, brain development is adversely affected. Now again, if your parents and you're understanding this and you're reading books about this or you're hearing about this for the first time on the podcast, I think it's common that one of the first places we go is to 
our own children and the mistakes that we are making or the imperfections or the insecurities that we have as parents. And I think that happens to most, most parents. I think most of us realize that we fall far short of being able to give to our children what they need and what they deserve for their development into mature adulthood. And we can still do our best. We can still learn and improve and grow. And part of that, we're going to have to work with what our issues are that we're afraid of transferring or not being able to give to our children what they need. Dan Siegel, who is also a medical doctor and a psychologist, I think. uh, I don't remember all of his degrees. I think he works at one of the universities in California, says, From early infancy, it appears that our ability to regulate emotional states depends upon the experience of feeling that a significant person in our life is simultaneously experiencing a similar state of mind. Gabor writes, Quote, within minutes following birth, the mother's odors stimulate the branching of millions of nerve cells in the newborn's brain. A six-day-old infant can already distinguish the scent of his mother from that of other women. Later on, visual inputs associated with emotions gradually take over as the major influences. By two to seven weeks, the infant will orient toward the mother's face in preference to a stranger's, and also in preference to the father's unless the father is the mothering adult. At 17 weeks, the infant's gaze follows the mother's eyes more closely than her mouth movements, thus fixating on what has been called, quote, the visible portion of the mother's central nervous system, end quote. The infant's right brain reads the mother's right brain during intense eye-to-eye mutual gaze interactions. As an article in Scientific American expressed it, quote, embryologically and anatomically, The eye is an extension of the brain. It is almost as if a portion of the brain were in plain sight, end quote. The eyes communicate eloquently the mother's unconscious emotional states. Now he talks about a double TV experiment that was done that shows us just how important a close moment-to-moment connection between mother and infant can be. And again, I just wanted to clarify when I'm talking mother, and I say this to some of my male clients as well, I do not believe that mothering is a gendered thing. I do not believe that women biologically can take care of an infant or attune and give the nurturing that an infant needs more so than males. Yes, our bodies are designed to carry that infant to term, In many instances, not all instances, will they maybe be carried to term or be a healthy, you know, fetus. But when I'm talking about mother in this podcast episode, and often when I'm talking about that with my clients, I will say, I think mothering is also just a verb and it doesn't necessarily care the gender of the person doing the mothering as long as the mothering gets taken care of. Now, yes, there is some significant research and data that we have talking about the infant's ability to know the person whose womb it was created and grown. And we know that there's a lot that happens outside 
of the womb that also is important. So in this double TV experiment, infants and mothers interacted via a closed circuit television system. So they were in separate rooms and infant and mother observed each other on live feed. They communicated by means of the universal infant mother language, gestures, sounds, smiles, facial expressions. The infants were happy during this phase of the experiment. When the infants were unknowingly replayed the happy responses from the mother recorded from the prior minute, Dan Siegel wrote, quote, they still became as profoundly distressed as infants do in the classic flat face experiments in which mothers in person gave no facial emotional response to their infants' bids for attunement, end quote. Why were the infants distressed despite the sight of their mother's happy and friendly faces? Because happy and friendly are not enough. What they needed were signals that the mother is aligned with, responsive to, and participating in their mental states from moment to moment, not pre-recorded. All that was lacking in the instant video replay, during which infants saw their mother's face unresponsive to the messages they, the infants, were sending out, this sharing of emotional spaces is called attunement. Emotional stress on the mother interferes with infant brain development because it tends to interfere with the attunement contact. Attunement is necessary for the normal development of the brain pathways and neurochemical apparatus of attention and emotional self-regulation. It is a finely calibrated process requiring that the parent remain herself in a relatively non-stressed, non-anxious, non-depressed state of mind. Its clearest expression is the rapturous mutual gaze infant and mother directed each other, locked in a private and special emotional realm from which at that moment, the rest of the world is as completely excluded as from the womb. Now Gabor continues, attunement does not mean mechanically imitating the infant. It cannot be simulated, even with the best of goodwill. As we all know, there are differences between a real smile and a stage smile. The muscles of smiling are exactly the same in each case, but the signals that set the smile muscles to work do not come from the same centers in the brain. As a consequence, those muscles respond differently to the signals depending on their origin. This is why only very good actors can mimic a genuine heartfelt smile. This attunement process is far too subtle to be maintained by a simple act of will on the part of the parent. Infants, particularly sensitive infants, intuit the difference between a parent's real psychological states and their attempts to soothe and protect the infant by means of feigned emotional expressions. A loving parent who is feeling depressed or anxious may try to hide that fact from the infant, but the effort is futile. In fact, it is much easier to fool an adult with forced emotion than a baby. The emotional sensory radar of the infant has not yet been scrambled. It reads feelings clearly. They cannot be hidden from the infant behind a screen of words or camouflaged by well-meant but forced gestures. It is unfortunate but true that we grow far more stupid than that by the time we reach adulthood. Now attunement, he says, is the quintessential component of a larger process called attachment. He says attachment is simply our need to be close to somebody. It represents the absolute need of the utterly and helplessly vulnerable human infant for secure closeness with at least one nourishing, protective, and constantly available parent figure. 
Essential for survival, the drive for attachment is part of the very nature of warm-blooded animals in infancy, especially of mammals. He says in human beings, attachment is a driving force of behavior for longer than in any other animal. For most of us, it is present throughout our lives. Although we may transfer our attachment need from one person, our parent, to another, say a spouse or even a child, we may also attempt to satisfy the lack of human contact we crave by other various means such as addictions or perhaps fanatical religiosity or the virtual reality of the internet. Much of popular culture, from novels to movies to rock or country music, express nothing but the joys or the sorrows flowing from satisfactions or disappointments in our attachment relationships. Most parents extend to their children some mixture of loving and hurtful behavior, of wise parenting and unskillful, clumsy parenting. The proportions vary from family to family and from parent to parent. Now, again, when we think about how did we learn our skills as parents or how did we develop our parenting philosophy or our parenting that our infants experience from us, most of us, I mean, maybe you took a class on child development or something like that in high school or college. I don't think I did. I think the year I was supposed to do like home economics, I actually got kicked out of my class and pretty early on, like the first, I think it was within the first two weeks of the semester, I got kicked out of home ec and signed up for auto shop. So like I didn't take one of those classes, but maybe you take one of those classes. I don't know that that's really where we learn how to parent and how to have a calm nervous system and provide a safe, secure environment for our baby to sense, not something that we can just kind of talk them into or tell them that that's what they're feeling, but that we can actually create that. I don't know that that's a class that gets taught whether it's in high school or in college. I don't know that we can actually teach that. I think that's something we have to become. So again, when you look at, you know, what skills did I have as a parent coming into my parenting years? Well, maybe I had good parents and that's helpful, but we also might think my parents were great parents, but I don't know how they did that. How did they do that? Maybe we can ask them questions and they can try to transfer some of their knowledge or their experience or their wisdom to us as new parents. But I think for many of us, we have less than ideal parents. We didn't have great parents. And so we're trying not to do that, but we're still left with the impact of how our parents shaped and influenced us. And I don't know that that translates into good skills going into parenting. Okay, so hang with me. I want to talk about one more part that he talks about in terms of our biology and our nervous system. So he says, quote, behind the forehead in the vicinity of the right eye is where one of the most important regulatory centers in the brain is located, the orbitofrontal cortex. It is part of the prefrontal cortex, that area of the gray matter most involved in social intelligence, impulse control, and attention. It is also important in short-term working memory. The orbital frontal cortex, so named because of its proximity to the eye socket, known as the orbit, 
is more developed on the right side and appears to dominate its counterpart in the left hemisphere. Nature's goal for human growth is for the eventual maturation of a self-motivated, self-regulated, and self-reliant adult. The infant lacks these attributes. We may say that the natural agenda is really the transformation of regulation from dependence on another individual to independence, from external regulation to internal regulation. This shift from external to internal regulation requires the development of the prefrontal cortex, the cortex in the very anterior portion of the brain, including and especially the orbitofrontal cortex. So then he says, we're going to switch to calling it the OFC just for the sake of brevity. So he says, the OFC has connections with virtually every other part of the cortex. It also has rich connections with the lower brain structures where the body's internal physiological states are controlled and monitored and where the most primitive and powerful emotions such as fear and rage are generated. It is at the center of the brain's reward and motivation apparatus and contains more of the reward chemicals associated with pleasure and joy, dopamine and endorphins than almost any other area of the cortex. Via its connection with the vision centers of the cortex, the OFC plays a role in visual spatial orientation, the locating of objects in space. When visual spatial orientation is impaired, a person tends to bump his head or a lot or run into people unseenly and have difficulty following physical directions. The OFC has a major role in the control of attention. From all the information about the external environment and internal body states entering our brain, the OFC helps to pick out what to focus on. While the explicit meaning of words spoken is analyzed in the left hemisphere, the right OFC interprets the emotional content of communications, the other person's body language, eye movements, and tone of voice. It carries out a constant and instantaneous computation of the emotional significance of situations. It is deeply concerned with the assessment of relationships between the self and others. According to a number of studies, it is dominant for the processing, expression, and regulation of emotional information. He says the OFC also functions in impulse control, helping to inhibit the lower centers in the brain where urgent emotional drives originate. When it is working smoothly, it can delay emotional reactions long enough to allow mature, more sophisticated responses to emerge. When its connections are disrupted, it lacks this capacity. At such times, primitive, unprocessed emotions will flood our minds, overwhelm our thinking process, and control our behavior. Finally, the OFC records and stores the emotional effects of experiences, first and foremost, the infant's interactions with his or her primary caregivers during the early months and years, its imprinting of the earliest interactions with the primary caregivers is the unconscious model from which all later emotional reactions and interactions will be formed. Groups of neurons in the OFC encode the emotional footprints of these important experiences, footprints in which, willy-nilly, we tend to follow later in life, again and again and again. The great Canadian researcher Donald Hebb showed that groups of neurons that have fired together once are more likely to fire simultaneously in the future. This Hebbian principle has been expressed as neurons that fire together wire together. 
The early emotional imprinting is encoded in the form of potential neuronal patterns, groups of nerve cells primed to fire together. We experience them later in life when we find to our surprise that some relatively minor stimulus, like being cut off in traffic, for example, triggers in us an irrational rage, leaving us scratching our head and wondering, what was that about? Well, it was about the early imprinting of the OFC with rage and frustration of the infant and toddler and about the Hebbian principle. Each time we scream at someone in traffic, we are telling a story from the earliest part of our life. Now, I know it was probably just a couple of podcast episodes ago, I admitted that I have that tendency. I don't actually scream at other people in traffic out loud or like even just in my car by myself. And I just out of, you know, fear, I don't like flip people off anymore. There was a time period when I did that. I don't do that. And I mean, my husband would say I'm still a little bit uh, generous with horn honking, but I think I have decreased my horn honking just because you don't know what the other person is going to do when you respond. But I know internally I get so irritated, maybe even, I don't know if I would call it rage. I'm hesitating putting that word rage to it, but it brings up something in me that I do. It leaves me scratching my head thinking, where is that coming from? Now I could tell myself, well, I'm not screaming and I don't flip people out. I'm not an aggressive driver. So this doesn't apply to me. I mean, and I just would leave it at that. But I know that it probably does apply to me. And like he is saying, I'm telling myself a story from the earliest part of my life. Now, like you, I don't have memories from the earliest part of my life. But I know how annoyed I get in traffic when people are going under the speed limit or when people are not paying attention or the light turns green and nobody's going or the person in front of me doesn't go. I know that that triggers something in me. He says, quote, emotional interactions stimulate or inhibit the growth of nerve cells and circuits by complicated processes that involve the release of natural chemicals. To give a somewhat simplified example, when happy events are experienced by the infant, endorphins or reward chemicals, the brain's natural opioids, are released. Endorphins encourage the growth of nerve cells and of connections between them. Conversely, in animal studies, Chronically high levels of stress hormones, such as cortisol, have been shown to cause important brain centers to shrink. Emotions affect not only the release of brain chemicals in the short term, but also the long-term balance of neurotransmitters, the molecular messengers telegraphing electrical impulses from one nerve cell to another. Just as the infant's early interactions with the nurturing caregivers help to shape the structure of brain centers and circuits, so do, too, do they play a role in determining the chemistry of the brain. Throughout the human lifespan, there remains a constant two-way interaction between psychological states and the neurochemistry of the frontal lobes, a fact that many doctors do not pay attention to. He says the dominant tendency is to explain mental conditions by deficiencies of the brain's chemical messengers, the neurotransmitters. As Dan Siegel has sharply remarked, quote, we hear it said everywhere these days, that the experience of human beings comes from their chemicals, end quote. Depression, according to the simple biochemical model, is due to a lack of serotonin, and it is said, so is excessive aggression. 
The answer is Prozac, which increases serotonin levels in the brain. Attention deficit is thought to be due in part to an undersupply of dopamine, one of the brain's most important neurotransmitters, crucial to attention and to experiencing reward states. The answer is Ritalin. Just as Prozac elevates serotonin levels, Ritalin or other psychostimulants are thought to increase the availability of dopamine in the brain's free prefrontal areas. This is believed to increase motivation and attention by improving the functioning of areas in the prefrontal cortex. Although these beliefs carry some truth, such biochemical explanations of complex mental states are dangerous oversimplifications. The neurologist Antonio Damasio cautions, quote, when it comes to explaining behavior and mind, it is not enough to mention neurochemistry. The problem is that it is not the absence or low amount of serotonin per se that causes certain manifestations. Serotonin is part of an exceedingly complicated mechanism which operates at the levels of molecules, synapses, local circuits, and systems, and in which sociocultural factors, past and present, also intervene powerfully. Gabor wraps that thought up by saying the deficiencies and imbalances of brain chemicals are as much effect as cause. They are greatly influenced by emotional experiences. Some experiences deplete the supply of neurotransmitters, other experiences enhance them. In turn, the availability or lack of availability of brain chemicals can promote certain behaviors and emotional responses and inhibit others. He says, in the human infant, the growth of dopamine-rich nerve terminals and the development of dopamine receptors is stimulated by chemicals released in the brain during the experience of joy. The ecstatic joy that comes from the perfectly attuned mother-child mutual gaze interaction. Happy interactions between mother and infant generate motivation and arousal by activating cells in the midbrain that release endorphins, thereby inducing in the infant a joyful, exhilarated state. They also trigger the release of dopamine. Both endorphins and dopamine promote the development of new connections in the prefrontal cortex. Dopamine released from the midbrain also triggers the growth of nerve cells and blood vessels in the right prefrontal cortex and promotes the growth of dopamine receptors. A relative scarcity of such receptors and blood supply is thought to be one of the major physiological dimensions of ADD, which is an interesting thing that we are starting to learn more about ADD. Antonio Damasio, who I've formerly quoted, MD and PhD, wrote, to understand in a satisfactory manner the brain that fabricates human mind and human behavior, it is necessary to take into account its social and cultural context. So again, we have to look at, I took this from his book, Scattered, which I think he says is the first book he ever wrote. It's one I just recently read myself. When I was ordering the book on Amazon, I noticed there's a lot of different editions of it. I think that's because it was the first book that he wrote. And he's looking at ADD and understanding and looking at ADD from a different angle. So let's look at social and cultural roots. He says, quote, attention deficit disorder is found in higher proportions of the population in North America than overseas. Even if we accept that it may be overdiagnosed on this side of the Atlantic. In Driven to Distraction, Drs. 
Hallowell and Rady speculate that North America may have a different gene pool to account for the difference. They say, quote, the people who founded our country and continued to populate it over time were just the types of people who might have had ADD. They did not like to sit still. They had to be willing to take an enormous risk in boarding a ship and crossing the ocean, leaving their homes behind. They were action-oriented, independent, wanting to get away from the old ways. The higher prevalence of ADD in our current society may be due to its higher prevalence among those who settled America. Now, Gabor says this theory is psychologically attractive and may account for some of the prevalence of ADD in the New World, but it doesn't square entirely with history. He says the overwhelming majority of immigrants were not adventurers, but solid artisans, merchants, farmers, and workers escaping economic hardship, political oppression, religious persecution, or catastrophes such as the Irish potato family. He said, nor could this theory apply to African blacks brought here as slaves or to native North Americans subdued by guile and force. It would also fail to account for the rising incidence of ADD in Britain. A related theory says that today's ADD population are the descendants of yesterday's hunters, fast on their feet and quick-witted, restless and individualistic. In contrast to the non-ADD population whose ancestors were farming people, stolid, patient, hardworking traditionalists. Beautiful metaphor, questionable genetics. He says it's not obvious, or at least not to him, how an incapacity to keep still, a tendency to be clumsy, careless, and absent-minded, and having a poor sense of direction would combine to make someone a great hunter. He said the greater prevalence of ADD in North America is rooted in something more prosaic and more disturbing than genes from adventuresome forebears. The gradual destruction of the family by economic and social pressures in the past several decades. This process is more advanced in North America than elsewhere in the industrialized world. He says families also live in a social and economic context determined by forces beyond their control. If what happens in families affects society, to a far greater extent, society shapes the nature of families, its smallest functioning units. He says the human brain is a product of society and culture just as it is a product of nature. John Bowlby wrote that, quote, the behavioral equipment of a species may be beautifully suited to life within one environment and lead only to sterility and death in another. Each species has what Bowlby calls its environment of adaptedness. The circumstances to which its anatomy, physiology, and psychological capacities are best suited. In any other environment, the organism or species cannot be expected to do so well and may even exhibit behavior that is at best unusual and at worst positively unfavorable to society. Gabor says how poorly today's North American way of life serves the needs of the human body may be gauged by the high levels of, say, heart disease, diabetes, and obesity on this continent. The situation of the human brain is analogous. The miswired ADD circuits of the prefrontal cortex are as much the effect of unhealthful circumstances as are the cholesterol-plugged arteries of atherosclerotic coronary disease. Now he says that psychoanalyst Eric Erickson devoted a chapter to his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Childhood and Society. He had a chapter reflecting on the American identity. He said, quote, This dynamic country subjects its inhabitants to more extreme contrasts 
and abrupt changes during a generation than is normally the case with other great nations. Such trends have only accelerated since Erickson made that observation in 1950. Gabor says, he says, the effects of rapid social and economic shifts on the parenting environment are too well known to need detailing here. The erosion of community, the breakdown of the extended family, the pressures on marriage relationships, the harried lives of nuclear families still intact, and the growing sense of insecurity, even in the midst of relative wealth, have all combined to create an emotional milieu in which calm, attuned parenting is becoming alarmingly difficult. Then Gabor quotes Robert Bly. Robert Bly was an American poet, an essayist, an activist, and he was a leader of the men's movement. In his book, The Sibling Society, he described, quote, the rage of the unparented. He said, in 1935, the average working man had 40 hours a week free, including Saturday. By 1990, it was down to 17 hours. The 23 lost hours of free time a week since 1935 are the very hours in which the father could be a nurturing father and find some center in himself, and the very hours in which the mother could feel she actually has a husband. These patterns characterize not only the early years of parenting, but entire childhoods. Family meals, talks, reading together no longer take place. What the young need is stability, presence, attention, advice, good psychic food, unpolluted stories, is exactly what the sibling society won't give them. Now I think everybody, not just the young, need that. We need talks. We need stability. We need presence. We need attention. We need good food. We need advice. And we need unpolluted stories. Now he talks in here a little bit just about how, you know, economic pressures have forced more families to have two working parents, which he's saying that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, he says, I'm, I'm not one who advocates for mothers to return to the homes and not be in the workplace or for women to not be in the workplace. But he says, we need to recognize that our country largely undervalues caring for the young and our overworked, underpaid daycare workers reflect that. He talks about how New York is the state in our nation who has passed the strictest caretaker to child ratio when it comes to daycare ratios for young children. And it says that that ratio has to be one caregiver to every seven children. And these are young children. These are not like 10 year olds, right? These are young children. And he says, and and New York is the strictest, the one who has the strictest law in our country on that. So if you can imagine the things that we're talking about that need to be happening for that early infant brain, psychology, nervous system development, and then think about one person who's probably overworked and underpaid taking care of seven young kids. That's going to be a problem. And he says we need to figure out how to value and give money towards caring for the young, whether that's for parents to be at home during that time period, whether that's to improve the situation in our daycare and with the daycare workers, but that that's something we can no longer continue to neglect and think that we're going to get by. Now, he also talks about, and I see that we're, you know, over an hour, which I've done over an hour podcast before, so I'm not going to get too worked up about that. But I want to talk a little bit more about 
the nervous system. So the nervous system has the brain and the spinal cord at its center. It has two major parts. So you probably have heard about this from a high school biology, physiology class, probably physiology class. So maybe you have to go back there or maybe when I'm reading what he talks about, it'll ring a bell. But it's always good to review because again, this is our body. This is how it works. We should understand it at least at some level. So he says the voluntary nervous system moves the muscles of the trunk, limbs, and head in a deliberate action such as speech or changes of position. The autonomic nervous system is autonomous from or independent of our conscious will, as its name implies. It controls what are called the smooth muscles, which line the walls of organs such as the gut, blood vessels, glands, and airways in the lungs. It governs body states such as the release of hormones, blood flow to internal organs and to the skin, and the contraction of the muscles in the intestines. Autonomic nerves also set the baseline tension of voluntary muscles, as well as skin temperature and our relaxation of hair follicles. In general, they provide the wiring for a stable internal chemical and physiological body environment. Again, all of those things we can't necessarily control just with our conscious thought. He continues, the body's physiological states are directly influenced by emotions because the part of the cortex that processes emotions also oversees the autonomic nervous system. The tummy aches of the sensitive child are muscle cramps caused by autonomic signals triggered by unconscious fears and tensions. Gut feelings express the effect of emotions on the autonomic nervous system, as does the common report that my hair stood on end. Autonomic nerves are responsible for tight muscles and explain why some things make us sick to the stomach or give us a pain in the neck. Now he says the autonomic nervous system has two opposing divisions, has the sympathetic, which expends energy, and the parasympathetic, which conserves energy. So I kind of think about this as, you know, my, when I wake up and go about my day and do all the things that I have to do in a day, you know, my sympathetic nervous system is online and it's operating. And then when I go to sleep at night, the parasympathetic nervous system turns on and I see it as kind of moving through my body and trying to clean up anything and process it through so that when I wake up the next day, everything is in its place and I have a clean slate and I'm ready to go for the next day. Now, when I'm explaining this to clients, when we're starting to talk about trauma, I will typically say one of the things that trauma does is, you know, we have more stimuli than usual, or maybe we don't, it interrupts our sleep patterns. We don't get as well-rested sleep, or maybe we don't get enough sleep, or maybe we need more sleep because of the things that have happened to us. So when we wake up the next day, things are not processed through. Things are not in their place. Things have not been put away and we are not ready for the next day. And then we go through that day and we kind of get backlogged. Now that's maybe a super simplified explanation that I give when we're starting to talk about trauma. So he says, when we are in a sympathetically aroused state, our muscles tense, our heart rate increases, blood flow goes to our limbs, and adrenaline is pumped through our bodies. The firing of sympathetic nerves creates a body climate of high arousal, important in survival because it enables us to move quickly in either escape or self-defense. This is the well-known fight or flight response. In daily life, we experience it as the body state associated with excitement 
or I'll sometimes use the word arousal. There are also times when the body needs to slow down, even times when being absolutely still is a matter of life and death. If flight or fight are impossible, not being noticed may be our ticket to survival. When parasympathetic nerves dominate, the body slumps, the head hangs down, the arms go limp, the eyes are averted, the facial muscles go slack. As the smooth muscle fibers encircling the arterioles in the face lose their tone, these small blood vessels dilate and the facial skin is suffused with blood. We blush. The low arousal state is experienced in the common feeling of shame. In a chronic form, it is a characteristic of depression. Hyperactivity is unregulated high arousal, appropriate in the young toddler. Toward the end of the first nine months of life, the infant begins an enthusiastic exploration of her universe. No longer having to rely on adults for mobility, she tirelessly examines every nook and cranny of her surroundings, every object. She tests, tastes, plays, and discovers, learning the purpose and use of many things. During this phase of prolonged excitement, neural pathways are established that enable the cortex to inhibit the sympathetic nervous system. If the necessary circumstances are present, during stress, these circuits do not develop properly and hyperactivity persists. The stage, meant to last only a few months, becomes a state that the child remains stuck in. He continues, there is another component to hyperactivity throughout life. It continues to be a human response during times of high anxiety. He says, if you were told that in the next week, at some unpredictable moment, some unnamed disaster would strike you or one close to you, and that you were helpless to do anything to prevent it, your response would quite probably resemble the habitual mental and physical behaviors of the hyperactive child or adult with ADD. You would have difficulty focusing your thoughts. Your mind might feel like a squirrel on a treadmill, racing but not going anywhere. Sitting still would be a chore. A cliched image of helpless anxiety in an adult is the father pacing nervously outside the delivery room where his wife is giving birth. The Vancouver psychologist Gordon Newfield calls anxiety, quote, an attachment alarm. Its role in the survival of the human infant and child is to signal when our attachment relationships, which we are absolutely dependent on, are threatened. He says it is useful unless it becomes a chronic state. So he says, just as inattention diminishes in the presence of a warmly supportive adult, so does the hyperactivity. Some children are very clear about this and can even express that when one of their attachment figures is not there, that they get very hyper. So being able to tell them like, settle down, don't do that when I leave the room, it's not really going to work because they're literally telling you my anxiety is coming because you've left the room. Now he says the toddler's hyperactive explorations are curtailed a few months after they began, which is a necessary outcome of exploring is the identifications of limits or of boundaries. Some of these boundaries are physical, such as the curb on a street. Some are social, like the pain another human being might feel having their hair pulled. The child who does not learn boundaries is in danger. There are limits not to be crossed, and the mode of learning is the attachment relationship. We do not find out about the boundaries of acceptable behavior by reading a manual or even by being told. The setting of limits has to begin long before we understand why those limits must be respected. We find out by the reactions of our parents, the most important of which are nonverbal. 
The word no by itself would mean nothing to the toddler unless it was said in a stern voice and with a disapproving look, along with other evidence of disapproval, such as shaking the head. Throughout life, the nonverbal messages we read between the lines of verbal communication, far more than the words themselves, define our relationships with others, either inviting us in or keeping us out. Alan Shore writes, even the most benign parenting, the seminal psychological researcher and therapist, involves some use of mild shaming procedures to influence behavior. At the beginning of the stage of mobile, restless exploration, 90% of maternal behavior consists of affection, play, and caregiving, with only 5% involved in prohibiting the junior toddler from ongoing activity. In the following months, there is a radical shift. The aroused toddler's curiosity and impulsiveness lead them into many situations where the parent must express disapproval. Between the ages of 11 and 17 months, the average toddler experiences a prohibition every nine minutes. That's a lot of curiosity and impulsiveness, right? And I had four kids, so I I know that that's a lot of curiosity and impulsiveness. In response to the words, vocal tone, and body language of disapproval, the toddler goes into the psychological shame state, from activity to inactivity, from expending energy to conserving energy from a high arousal state to a low arousal state. This achieves exactly what nature would intend, stopping a possibly dangerous activity at a signal from the parent. He says during the the phase of decreased arousal, new circuits will develop so that the cortex can inhibit the other part of the autonomic nervous system, its parasympathetic division. As before, the environment has to be right for the pathways of inhibition to mature. Shame becomes excessive if the parent's signaling of disapproval is overly strong, overly excessive, or if the parent does not move to reestablish warm emotional contact with the child immediately. Gershon Kaufman calls this restoring the interpersonal bridge, and he says that chronic stress experienced by the parent has the effect of breaking that bridge, that interpersonal bridge between the parent and child. Past the toddler phase, he continues, there will be many times... The child's behavior may trigger an angry response from the parent. Some parents are able to express anger without making the child feel cut off emotionally. They convey disapproval without rejection. Other parents, especially those with self-regulation problems of their own, may react with open or choked rage, punishing coldness or dejected withdrawal that signals defeat and disappointment. Each time this happens, shame is evoked in the child, especially as the parent usually believes and makes the child believe that whatever his, the parent's reaction is, the child is responsible for. So again, we have to look at some of our reactions in adulthood. We have to remember what it was like to be a kid. We have to be open for memories to come. We have to be, you know, maybe we have conversations with other people who knew us at that time or knew our family at that time and can share stories that maybe our parents have never talked about that can help us shed light on some of those early experiences or what our parents were dealing with or coping with when we were at those young ages. Gabor writes, a requirement of healing or becoming whole is circuitry in the brain that can carry different messages and a different non-helpless image of the self. There is strong evidence that such circuits can develop at any time in life as can neural pathways to help the cortex do its job of inhibition and regulation. 
He says, we have seen that experience has great influence on the circuitry of the brain and also that chemical changes, for better or worse, are affected by the environment. If the wiring and chemistry of the brain are not rigidly set by heredity, neither are they unalterably fixed in early childhood. The challenge of healing later in life is identical to looking at causation in infancy. What conditions promote development? What conditions hinder it? Those are things we need to be asking ourselves as we seek to understand the early origins of our story or the story that we were born into. For many of us, the life experiences that we had from our family or from the conditions our family were experiencing when we were young and developing interrupted a mature development of the self. And maybe we have some disorders. Maybe we have some symptoms in our adult life that we can point to, or maybe people close in our life are giving us feedback on and kind of pointing to and saying, hey, something is here for you to pay attention to and for you to start getting curious about and asking questions in order to further your understanding of yourself and to further that process of development that was interrupted and did not lead for our mature development. Now, I talked about Carl Rogers in my last episode. He also talked about how it's a false belief that the human child is an egotistical savage needing to be tamed. Infants do go through a phase of complete narcissism when they have no sense of any experience or point of view other than their own and see the world only in terms of their own needs. He says this is a natural stage, a part of development, reflecting only the wants of the helpless young human being. It is a phase we outgrow or become stuck in, depending on circumstances. The child will attain maturity, compassion, and the capacity for focused effort if the conditions for development are provided. Now, I also think of parents that I've known or parenting advice that has been given over the generations that did lead to that false belief that the human child is an egotistical savage needing to be tamed or they're, you know, selfish and they only want what they want, which is true, but that is a stage of development instead of looking at them through that lens. In his book on becoming a person, Carl Rogers described a warm, caring attitude for which he adopted the phrase unconditional positive regard. We talked about that last time. He said in this book, quote, it has no conditions of worth attached to it. This is caring, which is not possessive, which demands no personal gratification. It is an atmosphere which simply demonstrates I care, not I care for you if you behave thus and so. So the first thing is to create some space in the child's heart of hearts for the certainty that she is precisely the person the parents want and love. She does not have to do anything or be any different to earn that love. In fact, she cannot do anything because the love cannot be won and cannot be lost. It is not conditional. It is completely independent of the child's behavior. It is just there, regardless of which side the child is acting from, good or bad. The child can be ornery, unpleasant, whiny, uncooperative, and plain rude, and the parent still lets her feel loved. Ways have to be found to let the child know that certain behaviors are unacceptable without making the child herself feel not accepted. She has to be able to bring her unrest, her least likable side to the parent 
without fear that it would threaten the relationship. When that is made possible, absolute security is established. We can reliably expect emotional growth to follow." End quote. If you are working on developing a sense of self and trying to understand the story that you experience and have a more solid sense of self, maybe better self-esteem, better able to esteem yourself, I think it's important to understand some of the markers of low self-esteem. Now, Gabor Mate makes a great list. He says, an inflated, grandiose view of oneself, frequently seen in politicians, for example, craving the good opinion of others, frustration with failure, a tendency to blame oneself excessively when things go wrong, or on the other hand, an insistence on blaming others. In other words, the propensity to blame someone, mistreating those who are weaker or subordinate, or accepting mistreatment without resistance, argumentativeness, having to be in the right, or aversely assuming that one is always in the wrong, trying to impose one's opinion on others, or on the contrary, being afraid to say what one thinks for fear of being judged, allowing the judgment of others to influence one's emotions, or its mere opposite, rigidly rejecting what others may have to say about one's work or behavior. Other traits of low self-esteem are an overwrought sense of responsibility for other people in relationship, and as we will discuss shortly, an inability to say no. The need to achieve in order to feel good about oneself, how one treats one's body and psyche speaks volumes about one's self-esteem, abusing body or soul with harmful chemicals or behaviors, work overload, lack of personal time and space all denote poor self-regard. All of these behaviors and attitudes reveal a fundamental stance towards the self that is conditional and devoid of true self-respect. He says self-esteem based on achievement has been called contingent self-esteem or acquired self-esteem. Unlike contingent self-esteem, true self-esteem has nothing to do with a self-evaluation on the basis of achievement or the lack of it. A person truly comfortable in his own skin doesn't say, I am a worthy human being because I can do such and such. Thus says, I am a worthy human being, whether or not I can do such and such. Contingent self-esteem evaluates, true self-esteem accepts. Contingent self-esteem is fickle, going up and down with a person's ability to produce results. True self-esteem is steadfast, not adventitious. Contingent self-esteem places great store in what others think. True self-esteem is independent of others' opinions. Acquired self-esteem is a false imitation of true self-esteem. However good it makes one feel in the moment, it does not esteem the self. It esteems only the achievement, without which the self in its own right would be rejected. True self-esteem is who one is. Contingent self-esteem is only what one does. Sometimes when I'm explaining this to clients, I will talk about being value, just the value in being versus performance value, which is what he's calling like acquired esteem or contingent self-esteem. And you know, when I talk to my clients about just like being value or being esteem, right? This, just this, I am valued just for being, I will say, I mean, how old were you when you started performing? Right. And I mean, usually I hear a story that's, you know, three, four or five years old. So I'm like, okay, so being value has to predate that because I think sometimes it can be hard for us if we don't have being value, some of that performance or that contingent 
self-esteem happens pretty young where we start, you know, doing things because it makes people laugh or it makes people smile or it makes mom have a better day or it makes dad less angry. I mean, that can start at young ages. And so that being value in order for us to have that, that puts it at pretty young ages where I'm not performing because I can't yet, because I'm just trying to develop, learn to walk, learn to feed myself, learn to talk, learn to say words, that type of stuff where, I mean, sure, people can applaud and clap for us and get excited about some of those milestones that we hit, or most everybody is going to be hitting those milestones. And so... That's not necessarily something that we do that stands out or is special or makes our parents laugh. And so I I think just naturally that concept of being value puts that acquisition of being value at very young developmental stages. Gabor writes, although low self-esteem springs originally from the disrupted attachment relationship with the parent, the belief that it is exacerbated by poor achievement is not wrong. Only the link is not a direct one. In the majority of adults I have interviewed, it was evident that the inability to accept themselves was heavily reinforced throughout childhood by their parents' expectations of better performance and by their disappointment and disapproval at the absence of it. Superimposed on the parents' anxieties were the contemptuous judgments and shaming that throughout their childhoods, many of these adults had experienced in school. Not performance as such, but the attitudes of the adult world toward performance define how many children learn to value themselves. He writes, human infants are born with no capability whatsoever to hide or suppress any feeling, be it hunger, fear, discomfort, or pain. Healthy newborns are skilled at communicating anger and have a superbly articulate talent for saying no, as anyone can attest who has witnessed the rage of a frustrated infant or who has ever tried to feed some unwanted substance to a baby. She shouts out her responses to the world loud and clear. Given the survival value of emotional expression, nature would not have us give up that capacity unless the suppression of emotion was demanded by the environment. When we forget how to say no, we surrender self-esteem. He writes, what we see as the self is really a construct akin to the optical illusion that makes us believe that a series of photographic images projected onto a screen in rapid progression are people and objects in the real world. The self we experience is an unimaginably rapid series of firings of countless neurological circuits. At each moment, the state of self is constructed from the ground up. It is an evanescent reference state, so continuously and consistently reconstructed that the owner never knows it is being remade unless something goes wrong with the remaking. It is the relative consistency of the repetitious neurological activities of the brain that convinces us there is a solid self. The child or adult easily flung into extremes of emotion and behavior does not acquire the mastery over impulses that self-esteem demands. As the Harvard psychiatrist Judith Lewis Herman has pointed out, quote, to some degree, everyone is a prisoner of the past. Without knowing it, we often relive the past. What we take for present-day reality represents, in many situations, reactivated early memories stored in the implicit memory system. Implicit memory happens, according to the psychologist and memory researcher Daniel Schachter, when people are influenced by a past experience, 
without any awareness that they are remembering. This is also something that Pete Walker talked about in his concept of emotional flashback. Unconscious emotions and conscious feelings, rapid shifts in mood and dramatic physiological changes in the body can occur under the impact of implicit memory. It is now known that memory does not function like a video camera storing all the information from an experience on a single previously blank tape. Retrieving memories is not like searching a file to locate some desired item. Not only are there many components to the recording, storage, and reactivation of each memory, but also scientists and psychologists who study the subject speak these days of more than one type of memory process. The brain clearly has multiple memory systems, each devoted to different kinds of learning and memory functions. The ability to bring consciously to mind specific events, feelings, or ideas is only one form of memory, named explicit memory. Explicit memory is recall, facts, images, and impressions of the past that we can call back more or less at will and describe verbally. Daniel Schachter also points out that there are many components to any experience. There's physical and emotional, sights, sounds, words, actions, feelings. Each of these is analyzed by different sets of circuits in the brain. Encoding occurs as the connections between the various circuits involved in the experience are strengthened. These circuits are located in many separate parts of the brain, which is why there is no single neurological filing cabinet for memory storage. The implicit memory circuits carry the neurological traces of infancy and of childhood experiences. Encoded in them is the emotional content of those experiences, but not necessarily the details of the events themselves that gave rise to the emotions. Implicit memory is responsible for much of human behavior. It's workings all the more influential because they're unconscious. Whenever we experience ourselves caught up in feelings that seem to overwhelm us, we are likely in the realm of implicit memory, as we also are when we find ourselves quite cut off from our feelings. The implicit effects of past experiences shape our emotional reactions, preferences, and dispositions. These are key elements of what we call personality. While our sense of self and identity is highly dependent on explicit memory for past episodes and autobiographical facts, our personalities may be more closely tied to implicit memory processes. Okay, so this has been a lot of information in this podcast. It's been a lot of technical information that I have read, which is not typical of most of my podcast episodes. And I hope you hung in. You might need to reread this, or not reread, we're not reading, I'm reading. You might need to listen to this episode multiple times or just start getting familiar with Dr. Gabor Mate and see what he says, whether that's on YouTube videos. He's been on several different podcasts out there. Um, and like I said, he has a lot of books, many books, and I have not been disappointed by any of his books. So any of them are good to pick up and start reading. He asks, you know, towards the end of the book, what are the conditions necessary for the development of self-regulation, intrinsic motivation, and self-esteem in this grown-up person? Well, the difference, of course, is that building these conditions is no longer the task of a caregiving parent. An adult faces the daunting responsibility of offering herself the very support and nurturing attention that prevented her from being able to summon that up. The fundamental problem is not how the person manages this or that duty or self-appointed task, 
but in what relationship they stand vis-a-vis their, with their own self. The issue still remains one of relationship, but this time parent and child are combined in one and the same person. So some of the suggestions that he offers up, I've talked about in different episodes, not necessarily in his wording, but the first one that he identifies for understanding and psychologically supporting ourselves, He says we have to have compassionate curiosity in the search for self-insight. So, you know, I think developing a new view towards ourself is not an easy task. And usually there are a lot of layers by the time we're reaching adulthood that get in the way of us developing this new image or view that we hold of ourselves. It requires being kinder to ourselves. It requires noticing how we talk to ourselves, about ourselves, whether that's silently or verbally, and starting to be aware of that, not with criticism, but with compassion and understanding that there was a time where self-deprecating talk was what was needed for myself and for my survival, but that I no longer need to live from that place. The second suggestion he makes for self-parenting is to have self-acceptance. And this is going to mean tolerating guilt and tolerating our anxieties. The self, he writes, is as we experience ourselves, which is going to be happy one moment, anxious the next, confident in the morning, guilty and ashamed in the afternoon, giving now and needy then. He says the problem is not that we have these shifting and conflicting feelings, The problem is that we take a very conditional attitude towards them and we can be shaming and critical of ourselves. We're also going to need to understand that learning what we want, what we like, what we don't want, what we don't like, what we need is going to take practice. And sometimes it's going to require us to say no to another person or not now to another person and that may create some guilt or some anxiety or both in us as we start to put our needs above those of others, not in selfish ways, but in ways that are healing to ourselves. The third suggestion he makes is do not punish yourself for where you are currently. He says, for most of us, I think for all of us, the awakening is not sudden, but it's gradual and it occurs in stages. He talks about how some may have meandered down side paths, sleepwalked into many dead-end corridors. Many pay for each mistake, and unfortunately, so do others. None of that could have been avoided. All of it had to happen, not only for them to find the right direction, but to know that they have found it. To paraphrase Nietzsche, even the wrong turns and side roads have meaning and purpose, if only to teach us which way the path to oneself does not lie. The next suggestion he talks about is choosing a guide. Now, obviously, mental health professionals are going to be able to be some guides. Now, not all uh, therapists or mental health practitioners approach therapy the same way that I do. And I think one of the best ways to find, you know, a mental health therapist is word of mouth, which means you've got to be talking about the fact that you are looking for or interested in going to therapy. And be able to kind of hold on to a sense of self and say that's not a bad thing. 
that's a good thing that I'm doing. I'm not going to have criticism or allow others to criticize me because I'm acknowledging I want to find a good therapist. And then to also keep in mind that a good therapist is not there to cure you or to fix you, but rather to help you develop, to expand awareness and to allow for growth. Anthony Storr, who is a British psychiatrist and psychoanalyst said, when a person is encouraged to get in touch with and express his deepest feelings in the secure knowledge that he will not be rejected, criticized, nor expected to be different, some kind of rearrangement or sorting out process often occurs within the mind, which brings with it a sense of peace, a sense that the depths of the well of truth have really been reached. Now, sometimes for some people, you know, maybe you're saying I can't afford therapy and I understand at some level um, that costs can be prohibitive and not all therapists that, who are paneled with your insurance, if that's a benefit of your insurance, not all therapists who are paneled with your insurance are good therapists or are the therapists that you're looking for to work in the way that you want them to work. I also, you know, encourage people to understand that therapy is a collaborative effort and there are going to be things that my clients have to teach me about themselves and their stories. And there are also things that I can teach clients about how the self works or how we apply psychological principles or look through the lens of psychology or understanding development. And then I think also you're going to find guides who are not licensed professionals. I know in my life, I've come across many guides in my life that were not therapists. Some of them were my therapists and some of them were just people who were in my life for a short time period. Some have been in my life for a longer time period or who were in my life and then left and now are back. And I think when we are in a place of opening up the self and examining the self, we can find ourselves in areas where other people come into our lives who can also be guides. Now, I also think the same can be true. We're somewhat vulnerable. And so we still have to have some critical thinking skills when certain people approach us because as we've talked before, trauma bonding can happen. We can tend to have the trauma repeat itself one more time instead of actually getting into a healing cycle. And I just think, you know, in the end, you have to be able to look at how do I feel in the presence of this person, whether that's a therapist or whether that's another guide that has come into my life. Do I feel hopeful about myself or am I just trying to copycat and be like them? Are they interested in helping me with what I need or are they getting out of helping? Are they getting out of helping me something for themselves? One of the questions that Gabor asked is what do our fears or fantasies of the future reflect if not our past? Now that's a, that's a multifaceted question. When I first read that question, I thought, oh gosh, a lot. Like, oh wow, I don't want to see that. To look at future worries or future fears or future fantasies and to see how that reflects the story of my past. I mean, I see it. It's not always comfortable to see it and to wrestle with that question and what the answers are. I know for myself, there has to be in my early story, a, uh, a story along the lines of being abandoned. 
and you know, just knowing some of the family dynamics, I'm, that's not a far stretch for me to accept or to think, yeah, that's a high likelihood or that was probable. But it also kept me as I got older and maybe that story that I knew in my bones, the story that I knew in my body of being abandoned, I think I knew that story less and I just was very avoidant of relationships. And it kept me from a lot of relationships, both, you know, some romantic relationships with, which I don't, I don't know if not having high school romances were that much of a loss to my development. I, I don't know. They weren't there. I also lost friendships because of my own fears. You know, when, when I eventually started, uh, I don't know if I was dealing with that or if my husband was just extremely patient and consistent and earned my trust. So when I got into a committed relationship with him, you know, one of the first fears that surfaced for me after we got married was that he was going to die young. Now, I don't know that there's not some rational thinking to that. You know, his father died at 52, I think, which is my current age. I can't imagine life ending right now. There's a lot that I still want to experience in my life and just moments I want to be present for. And I don't even know what all those moments are, but I want to be present for them. And so his father died unexpectedly in his sleep of uh, a heart attack at 52. We were, you know, pretty newly married and we had a baby, but you know, she was not, I think we have pictures of her as a baby with his father, but nothing really beyond that. And, you know, his twin brother also had a heart attack. I think it was like the next year. Um, he survived. I think he was in better physical health and probably more than just physical health that he, that helped him not die from his heart attack. Their father had a heart attack. I think it was around the same age, 52, maybe 53. And he passed away at the same age. So there was some, you know, logic to my fear. It wasn't coming from nowhere. But my therapist also pointed out to me at one point, like, you know, this fear of him, like you finally allowed yourself to be in a relationship. And now this fear of him dying young or abandoning you is keeping you from really settling into this relationship and fully allowing yourself to attach to him and to be in this relationship. Now, at the time I, I felt like I was attached to him and I felt like I was in the relationship. It's not like I had one foot in and one foot out. But with time and so, with some work on myself, I, I really started to realize that there was a lot of fear of abandonment, which, you know, was coming across in that storyline of him dying young. You know, he's 51 and it's not like that fear completely went away. I think we have talked about it over the years and we've done some things, you know, he's in good physical health from what we understand. When he turned 50, he went, you know, and went to all the doctors and had all the tests run and everything looked great. And I think he's taken better care of himself physically than his father did. I think emotionally, I think he's in a better place. I think both of us are in a better place than we were when we got married or started our relationship, which was before we got married. The poet Rilke said, quote, Yet they who belong to the distant past are in us. 
serving as impetus, as a burden to our fate, as blood that can be heard rushing as a gesture rising out of the depths of time. Now, I've, I've talked also before about uh, coming from a family of Mormon pioneers. You know, I think it's four generations ago on both sides, both my dad's side and my mom's side and my mom's side on both sides of the family, not on my dad's, on my paternal grandfather's side of the family. But that's, that's in my ancestry, right? That's in my distant past. They are people who belong to my distant past. And as Rilke wrote, as blood that can be heard rushing, as a gesture rising out of the depths of time. Now, there was a time that I, you know, read their journals or my mom would read their journals to us as we grew up. And I thought about their lives and, you know, their trek west to Utah as inspirational, as a legacy that they left for those who followed. And I think I've talked before on, on different podcast episodes that I, I see it differently now. Many of the women in my ancestry were polygamous wives. Some we know some about. It's not a great story, I don't think. They don't really write about it in their journals. And a lot isn't known. They're one of many wives. And so they aren't necessarily a person or a woman. Some had husbands who died while they were making the trek west and crossing the plains. And when they got to the valley, the Salt Lake Valley, they married a much older man for survival. And again, they were one of several polygamous wives. I don't know still the extent of how their stories have impacted me. What I do know, and as one of my therapists pointed out to me several years ago, as I was, you know, telling her the story of my life and just my story and getting her familiar, answering her questions, that type of stuff that happens in therapy, she pointed out that there's not a lot of women in my life who served as role models or who were inspirational to me or pushed me towards my potential. And that's true. I think I had some awareness around that, that most of the influential people in my life were males. Ironically, one was not my father at all. He had the opposite impact on me. But I had a lot of males who, you know, took me aside, made comments, made observations, pushed me one way versus another way when I was young and influential and needed some guides along the way. And those were males for me. And then I had four daughters and that changed things for me. I had to look at my issues as a female. I had to reckon and take an inventory of the beliefs that I had as a woman. Some of my insecurities, some of my biases, maybe some of those were given to me. Some of those maybe I created by my observations or things that I noticed. I think I had some internalized misogyny at some point in my life. And I had to start reckoning with that because I now had daughters and I had to create something for them that I wanted for them, that I believed in for them, which was not something that I held for myself as a woman. I am convinced that people can be deeply affected by unconscious anxieties 
and stresses that we have no conscious knowledge of whatsoever. And as we continue to work on ourselves, as we continue to unpack our story and unpack different values we hold, different beliefs we have, opinions we hold, more and more will come to us about our early stories and the impact that we still carry from that. And I don't, I don't know that the goal is to put it down and not carry it. I think the goal is to carry it knowingly and to carry it now intentionally so that what we pass forward to those who come after us is a little bit lighter and a little bit more conscious and more intentional. I hope this episode has helped. Like I said, I know there's a lot of of information packed into this episode. And so I hope you listen to it multiple times and you start to grasp what we're talking about with our physical body, with our nervous system, with our implicit and explicit beliefs and how all of that plays in to us understanding who we are and where we are so that we can work towards and journey towards a more solid sense of self. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen. Amen.